0: Welcome to another episode of Flow Forward. We are back after our long holiday break and back to talk about more RPGs and go off on a few tangents, most likely. Uh, I am Fred. I am your usual ostensible host, and I have with me this week, Karas Nower. Hello. And Miss Catrice. I'm here. (laughs) And Cavoire. Probably. Yeah. And (laughs) probably. (laughs) And Mark. Hello. All right. So this week, we're going to be talking about immersion value. Uh, And to explain at least a little bit of what we mean by immersion value, I would like Kat to uh, take it away first. So tell us what you thought when you were talking about immersion value, Kat.
1: Okay. So, like, the concept of immersion value at least how it pertains to like video games, which is kinda of what I was thinking of originally when I was uh coming up with the topic to discuss, is that it's usually what makes you forget that you're actually playing a game. Like it avoids all of the things like, um just things that would kick you out of being in character or it makes you remember that oh yeah, this is just a game or things that you know, otherwise, just, you know, prevent you from actually enjoying it for what it is. And because role playing is so built into the concept of trying to actually remain in character, it immersion value is kind of more important than it would be for most other genres of game.
2: Yeah, I agree. Immersion in games is pretty much. Getting your headspace completely into the fiction,
3: so what for you is what separates immersion from immersion value? so is immersion like the act, and immersion value is like a uh, a number you could associate to the the design or product that reflects how well it immerses you immersion value is more of a quant
2: a quantifier of how effective something is at keeping your headspace in the fiction. So like if there's music playing in the background, that's that has a certain value towards immersion or you know, just whatever the 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 real world ambiance is, and how the play progresses. Like, just keeping everybody in the fiction. Okay.
1: It's a little bit weird, but usually you don't hear, like, immersion value used as a quantitative value, because it's, it's, it tends to be handled as a negative space, which is a little bit weird. Like, things rarely are described as keeping you immersed. Some are, but usually it's more things that remove the immersion. So it's like if something actively takes you out of being immersed in the game rather than something that immerses you into it in the first place, is usually how it's looked at. I think we can actually cover both sides of that because I think they're both actually important and things that we can design for, but it is definitely a little bit weird yeah okay
2: it is that things are cats right that it's kind of talked about in a negative fashion where most of the things that are said about it should be discussing the opposite like by like having extraction value right sort of emergent value
0: okay and uh just for audience who don't know what you mean by extraction value can you explain that quickly Like, like immersion would be jumping into the pool. Extraction would be getting pulled out of it.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Great. So, what I I, it sounds to me like what you guys are what we're talking about here is the uh, the we're talking about things that add immersion and the 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 quantitative value, so to speak, um, of adding those things or getting rid of those things to the experience
1: hmm is that about right yeah one thing i think we should just split up early on because it is on the list of the topics and stuff but it's something we should go into early is to mention that there is a difference between like the immersion of how into the game you are and then the engagement within the game so you Mm. can like You can have somebody who is very immersed in playing their character, but then they pop out of it. And it's not even so much that they're out of character. It's that they're not even paying attention to the game at all at that point. Like this is not so much just somebody playing with their cell phone at the table. It's like, even if you're playing in the game, it's whether you even remember that it's a game or not.
2: Can we can we call that distraction and kind of treat it separately because it is kind of another level. Yeah, it,
1: of- right. it is a it's a separate thing. That's why I wanted to define mm. it. But calling it distraction, marks yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. So I, um, I I don't know if anybody else is familiar with, but when I was I've seen game design stuff, and this is more talking about video game design. Um, but they talk about this state of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, which is I think what we're talking about here a little bit where you're just kind of, you're into the game you're not fully, you know, you're just you're just playing the game, you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're just, you're playing and you're going and you're really fully immersed um, so I, I think we could probably bring that in as a, you know, as, and I, I have thought about flow in RPGs before and I think that that's it's a really hard thing to do because a lot of RPGs involve kind of thinking about what's going to happen next and, um, you know, creating that narrative, which often pulls you out of that state of flow. Um, And it's been, it's very hard, at least for me, to like get into a good state of flow and playing a role-playing game often, even a very good role-playing game.
2: Well, that's because unlike video games, role-playing games don't tend to operate in real time. Like Mm -hmm. you can try and you can maybe sustain it for a while, but it's not a relentless charge forward like a video game is. Mm-hmm. There's always something new happening on the screen.
1: There's also and, the... I'm oh, sorry.
2: And video games also have visuals and and audio pumping <laughs> out at the player constantly. So it's... the immersion is quite literal. It does, it's It's far less imagined in the way that it has to be in tabletop
1: yeah the thing is that it's it's the the fact that the computer game like regardless of whether it's console or whatever it does a lot of the work for you and every time you go to do something in a tabletop game that actually interacts with the rules you're risking infringing on that immersion value like every time you have to consult a table or you have to roll the dice or something, you are potentially knocking yourself out of being immersed in the game again. Right. So it, by the very It breaks new... that flow.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's the nature of tabletop. Like, you're always going to be pulled out of immersion when you have to interact with the rules. The the, yeah. the talent, or I guess, and the the, the practice of it is how ca- how quickly can you get back in?
1: Yeah, I think there's also something to be said for how far the rules can pull you out in the first place. Like, if you have to roll, like, 27 different dice in a roll row to figure out if you hit someone in combat, that kind of keeps you stuck in math for such a long period of time that it kind of forces you out of the game for such an extended period of time that there's no real way to prevent having lost immersion for a bit there.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves.
1: Um, yeah. Sorry. That's, that's a,
0: no, that's fine. That's a different topic. Um, but I think right now, because now we, we kind of know what we're talking about. We're talking about immersion value. Uh, the next thing I think we should define is what are we being immersed in? What are the different kinds of immersion Um, And how, you know, how do we engage with those different things? Uh, And it looks like, uh, Carr, you have um, some basic things that you'd like to bring up. Do you want to start this out?
2: Sure. Um, There's three things I can think of that are the different pools, if you will, of what players can be immersed in. There's the fictional world, the setting that's pretty much what draws a player to a game in the first place like the cover art is going to be kind of a a beckoning to immerse yourself and then <clears throat> you know during play it's how the world works and how the the PCs and the NPCs behave and how how the world maintains its internal logics. So, if if you mm-hmm. if a world at, you know is established to do A, and then all of a sudden it does B for no reason, that yanks you out. But if there's a reason for doing something other than A, then that create that should be. Handled as something to be discovered, why did it not happen the way the characters expected?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> the The second thing to be immersed in is the narrative the The ongoing series of fictional events that is the gameplay. All right. So whether that's combat or some kind of parlay discussion scene or, you know, very, very vaguely like downtime activity, like whatever's happening during the gameplay is the narrative. And then the third thing is the character itself. Like, does the does the game present enough of a char- enough of a lattice that the player can really get their teeth into or does the player bring enough bring something else to that lattice to make it chewable you know so that they can stay in character and not either come out of the character or break the character's internal consistency. Right. So, so those, those are the three main things I think are immersible.
3: I, I think you're right. Um, I would just add that I think in so I, I see what you're saying that the world and scenario is sort of the, the backdrop. It's um, the context that you're in. And if you're in a horror setting, you want everything to feel uh, grim, dark, like mysterious, uh, foreboding, and that's everything happening in the the environment. So, like the the creepy music in the background can contribute to that. Um, then the narrative is really the intrigue in the development of the story. It's what keeps you uh, going from one point in time to the next point in time within that scene, and then the character is sort of your personal stake in it. So why is this unique, or why is it compelling that your um, avatar, I guess, in this world is um, going through the scenario, or going through this narrative? Um, So that adds a bit of a a uniqueness to your interaction into the game. Um, And I think those three main ideas really tie into what the the core immersion of the role-playing experience should be
1: i think there might actually be a fourth like like it's kind like you could kind of describe it as narrative but like one thing that i think that might be described is I'm not sure what to call it. I'd almost call it the physics of what's going on. Like, you know, like if it's not just the narrative of, oh yeah, I'm like doing this action, but it's being able to actually uh, perceive the concept of doing that action, like in a way that you can actually imagine what's going on. Like you can say, I'm like, attacking the ogre and like okay yep you you attack the ogre great but it's like if you have mechanics that are built in such a way that they actually encourage you to describe exactly what you're doing like you actually roll between the ogre's legs and like cut it in the ankle as you roll past like something like that is very different from the rest of it like it doesn't White fit into the other ones as described because it's much because it's an action sequence it's much more of something that you almost for most people they'd probably just picture it in their head of like trying to see exactly what's going on
3: right so it's the-
1: i think it's almost its own separate thing but not quite
2: I would beg to differ, like combat actions and how players visualize the action, what's happening, that's still immersion in the narrative. And because that's because what happens in the narrative has to conform to how the world works, that's kind of those two immersion pools are kind of linked more obviously than the others
3: so yeah. perhaps the the cinematic value that Catrice is talking about is sort of like a, <clears throat> a tool for the narrative flow like it is one way to immerse yourself within the narrative is to have that sort of embodiment of yourself in the scenario and knowing how the scene would play out were you to be there or to watch it in a movie
1: yeah i can yeah i can see it in that sense like that's kind of how i was meaning though like if you could actually picture it as like a movie scene that's how i tried to design my settings and stuff but it's like uh if you have somebody it's the difference between just saying okay you are in like the courtroom of the king or whatever and he's talking to you and he's got like some guards around her stuff it's, like, the difference between that, which is enough to make it feel like, okay, we know where, where we are, what's happening. And then there's the difference of having, like, the GM, for example, that goes into intimate detail about describing the scents and the sights and such so that you get, like, a very strong image of exactly what's going on. Like, you can I basically think... picture the room itself. Like, I don't know. I think they're I think we're... close, but not th- quite the same.
2: I think we're going to get into this later, and that will most likely become clear how the, what you're talking about, the cinematics and the exposition, is actually part of the narrative emergent.
1: Yeah, I think it is part of it. It's just, it's, that's why I don't think it's its own separate thing, but it's it's very close to being separate, because I think there's like two separate aspects there that are being encompassed within the same concept all right so then
0: okay so we've got these three different or three different kinds of things that we can be immersed in how do we create this environment to allow us to be immersed in this stuff um maybe we should start with i'm guessing there's a couple of us who have a lot of thoughts on how to create a very immersive um, physical well physical with air quotes around environment as in the the world that the characters occupy so then how do we create that physical or pseudo-physical environment uh or society and world that the characters occupy and keep it immersive um i know carr earlier said you know if you do something and the outcome should be a then the outcome should always be A. It should not then suddenly just be B. Right. With
3: logical consistency. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Very much the uh, negative space we were talking about earlier.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it's explicitly not something that creates immersion. It's something that takes immersion away like it no, you were perfectly fine in that situation until something did something that you were not expecting and then you had to think about what was going on by the fact that you were thinking about it you realize oh wait i'm in a game again that's that's weird
2: well a always happening is the the the, the logical consistency is maintaining the immersion like you don't get a chance to or a reason to wonder why the world is working differently now and sometimes like like i sort of said earlier if the world does work differently that may be a puzzle to the characters or the players or both Hmm. Okay. But it's... What it's a puzzle for is not always going to be consistent. Like, it's not always going to puzzle the players and the characters. Um, because of the nature of the inconsistency maybe not entirely fictional. Or the... The viewpoint that allows the inconsistency to be seen may be fictional or real.
3: Uh, In the notes that I was taking down as Carr was listing off the three main points, uh, next to the world and setting, I had written the word context. Um, So providing the players with a context into what the world or setting should feel like allows that immersion to flow more naturally. So once you have the the title scrawl of Star Wars, you get a quick idea of what the environment should be and that allows you to situate yourself in the story of the world. And you're not thrown in cold, you have a little bit of context into what is happening. Um, yeah, your immersion gets is
2: <laughs> the the Star Wars movies are good at because the opening crawls kind of prime the audience for their immersion.
3: Exactly. Um, for the narrative part, I wrote intrigue next to it. And I think this is, this is the investment of why this story matters. So what is the story contributing or what is interesting to me about exploring this topic? Um, and I think that's where if you can construct a solid narrative, it's something that reaches for an interesting theme or interesting concept and brings it out and i think every game master has their own uh, unique style of what is interesting to explore is it tactical combat is it um, making tough decisions between what is right and wrong Um, and i think that's where you get a narrative um, immersion is from putting yourself in that situation where you have to Invest yourself emotionally or mentally into the pro- progress of the story,
2: and fictionally, yes, depending on the play style, because you may be immersing yourself as yourself, or the game may be designed to have you immersed as your
3: character, yep, exactly and uh, to to roll with that, the character, I wrote uniqueness. Um, and this is something that I think is the the core of what brings you into a character is a unique or um, pivotal element that you can latch onto. So the most compelling characters are ones that are a little bit interesting, a little bit different, or they're in a um, an interesting situation that makes them uh, a I don't know. Very compelling focus for this story. So every character I, that exists within the game world needs to have something that makes them uh, so special to just themselves. Hmm. Okay. I,
2: I would actually say that it's not uniqueness that should be the anchor point for a character. It just hmm. has to be identity.
3: Okay.
1: Well, something that makes them stand out. Yeah. Right uh since we're covering like ways you can create it especially mechanically <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> i've been coughing for like last 2 minutes straight sorry um <clears throat> i think that there's a few other things that you can do explicitly with your mechanics and such to actually improve the uh immersion value as a whole So, for example, like, um, providing visual details with, uh, player character actions. Like, if you're going to add an action that a character can take in the game, actually provide, like, a little bit of detail of what it would look like visually, just so that they have just enough of a scaffolding to actually picture it themselves. Um, another-
2: Exposition is not just for GM setting the scene.
1: Yeah, you you. if you have like something that people are using on a, like a regular basis, like if you have like, oh, this ability is called heavy attack. Don't just call it heavy attack. Be like, you actually do like a wind up and it's slower. It's easier to dodge, but it's going to hit like a truck kind of thing. It's like if you just point out that you are winding it up, that gives it's such a small thing, but it gives the players like, a a notification of what's actually happening in the game right another thing is details uh they that matter like if a player says they're going to do something and it doesn't have any effect in the game world or they come across like The GM just tells them, like, all these details about, like, the room and everything, but none of it actually matters, and they can't interact with it, and it's basically like a video game where you go up to the torch in the wall and you try to take the candle out and it's, like, glued in place and it basically can't be interacted with, then they're not going to care about what's there. And if they don't care about what's there, then they start ignoring what's there if you make it so that anything that is mentioned matters now that's partially the gm's uh, thing but if you give the gm like coaching and stuff and build things directly into the game so that if you mention this then there is an associated mechanic with it like say oh there's like um there's like uh water on the floor or something then you might trip on it or slide or it makes it so you can be electrocuted or whatever, then because it has an actual impact in what goes on, the players start paying attention to it more. It starts mattering to them, and they they notice that as part of the environment. They can now actually notice that, hey, there's water on the floor, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it kind of is.
2: Yeah. The... <clears throat> Role-playing is essentially, like, beyond character dialogue. It is essentially painting a moving word picture. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. Right. So, like, (laughs) imagine you're one of the animators on one of the old Disney movies. Like, every statement made during the gameplay is another frame of the movie.
0: Yeah, or part of a frame.
1: Yeah. Okay, there's one other thing I'd like to cover then quickly before we move. Or quickly by my standards. (laughs) And it's just that the longer you have to interact with the mechanics of the game, the more risk you're at of being removed from remembering like the immersion part of the game itself so if you're going to include mechanics try to keep them really quick like it, it doesn't like you can have a mechanic that <clears throat> i found you can have a mechanic that's interacted with in small little bursts repeatedly and it doesn't have as much of a problem as one big burst so it's like if you talk to a person Like just having a conversation with them and you have to interact with the rules every 30, 60 seconds to like glance at uh, some rule, but it's really quick. It only takes like a second or two. It's not a huge problem. But if you have the same sort of concept, but you have to interact with the rules and look up like an actual table and it takes Instead of, like, one or two seconds, it takes, like, 20 or 30 to, to find the rule, and that's going to kick you out of it. So try to keep it as quick as possible.
4: Well,
2: the same thing can be said for having a 40-D dice pool.
1: Well, yeah, if you're sitting there, like, counting up the dice in a run roll, I mean... It's like, yeah, it feels good to roll the dice, but then you have to actually sit there and count them for the next thirty seconds.
3: Mm-hmm. On what were you going the, to say, Mark? Yeah, on the on the points of um, your mechanics interacting or taking you out of the immersion. I think some of my favorite mechanics in games, tabletop games, um, including like lots of board games, is when they are able to continue some of the themes or elements from the story. So, if I'm playing Dread, the mechanic of how you do an action continues to build tension, which is the point of the game. And that mechanic, I think, is such a compelling design choice that like, I want to have my mechanics be something like that. Where... If I am building a certain type of emotion or a certain type of um, narrative consistency, I would love my mechanics to follow that emotion or narrative consistency. So ways to, to bring back elements of what your game world is like or ways to bring back elements of um, what kind of action you're doing and that it makes a difference. Um, are you Are you talking about the fail-forward principle in general? Not only fail-forward, but I think... If your um, if the act of rolling dice is meaningful to your game, that continues to build immersion. There's a game, and I forget what it's called, but um, there the chance to succeed involved you rolling some ludicrous amount of like d6 dice. But it was because the act of rolling felt like thunder, and you were supposed to be like a god, like a, a Greek god or some kind that could summon thunder. So the the act of rolling dice continued to build upon how powerful you should feel in your role. Um, similar to the Dread Tower, that it, it's tense to pull one of those blocks from the Jenga Tower, it continues to feed into what your character should be experiencing. Um, so it bridges the gap between you at the table and the character that you are embodying.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting way to bridge those things
3: because i think more and more that we are able to come up with ways that our mechanics continue to pull us back into the game like it's not i don't know our, our current design our best designs involve dice um like if you think of dnd that's the core of how actions are resolved you roll a die and that determines success or failure but that doesn't mean anything to the game context. And I think now that we've got cool indie projects, I've been seeing lots of games that are trying to do weird mechanics that try to pull you back into what the game's about, which I think is really cool and uh, effective in keeping that immersion at the table.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, it's those
0: those touchies, those feelies, which are often really useful. Um, And actually for me to, to bring it back a little bit uh, when we were talking about character um, and you guys and Mark brought up uniqueness or, you know, the the special thing that makes a character interesting, which I think is really important. Um, the other thing uh, for me that I think makes, uh, helps to make a character really immersive in general is uh, also just having that like relatability or just having that humanity within them. Because, you know, we as humans, uh, even if we're, you know, playing aliens, we always insert some of our own humanity, and so it's it's much easier to relate with and to play and to be immersed in a character if um, there is that humanity and relatability within it. Yeah. Um, so that's Absolutely. important to, and uh, you know, and not to say that Mark's uniqueness point isn't important. That's all probably almost more important, uh, especially for that original engagement. But to like make sure that you can keep uh those actions consistent and make it understandable to the players uh, to keep it within humanity is i think very important Mm that's a great point yeah um cat do you have something to say
1: uh i was just gonna mention one thing about my game as well was in relation to what mark had been saying was just that like i'm trying to do something similar there with the concept of since a large part of the theme is your own choices and your own choices have like consequences and such, like you don't always uh end up just rolling to see if you succeed or fail. A lot of the time, if it's like uh an out of combat thing, it's more like there's a number of things that you need to accomplish. You have a number of things that are in your way you have so many things that you can basically allocate points towards you're going to screw up in some part because you know you're not skilled to do all of it. You get to choose what goes wrong to you to a degree. So Mm -hmm. you know you're not going to get it perfect, but you might be able to control the outcome to some degree by focusing on what you're aiming for. And the whole point is to have that concept where the players are thinking as their character, okay, what is most important to me in this situation instead of just rolling the dice and being told whether they succeed or fail.
3: Absolutely. And um, one of the other ones of our games that I I think does this really well is Fred's game where there's a physical map that um, acts as the medium by which you travel you, you make distance in the game by putting the dice down on the map, and that tracks mm. how your party moves. And I think that's a mechanic that continues to feed into the idea of the themes of the game traveling across a map, which I think is like a an awesome, brilliant idea of keeping you focused on what the goal of the story is.
1: Yeah, that was actually a really good concept. Mm-hmm. I hope you haven't changed that. <laughs> Hell no, that's the only thing I haven't changed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Go, going, back,
2: going back to what Cat was saying, like one of the things I did with my game that kind of breaks the 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 tradition of table dynamics in role-playing is that I tell players that they're responsible for narrating themselves. Uh, okay they they have that agency which can up the immersion factor because they're the game doesn't expect the g the gm to step in and do it for them
0: Mm. that's
1: cool
0: okay all right. And actually, you know what, as long as we kind of uh, broach the topic, or we're talking about my map and uh, Mark was talking about different ways of using dice and the Dread Tower. Um, let's we can talk about uh, or go more specifically talking about immersion through like physical things at the table, uh, you know, little physical tools for players, uh, stuff like character pictures or minis or, you know, the map that you have at the table or even the dice you're rolling. Um, And and personally, for me, I'm not super big on this stuff. Uh, You know, I don't really use minis. I'm not big on character pictures. um, But I know for a lot of people uh, that that's a big part of why and how they play RPGs is that, you know, that ability to look at their mini and go, that's my character and to, you know, move it around the map. Um, So are there any best practices we can talk about there? Anything you guys like to do with that?
2: I'm with you, Fred. Like, I consider all that stuff optional. Some people do better with it than not, but it's. I don't consider it to be like required for any role playing game. Yeah. I think even games that do (laughs) include those things in their play guide do it in such a way that they're on the threshold of being necessities.
3: Okay. Um, I I agree. I don't think that it's necessary. I know that I've gotten a lot of inspiration and a lot of guidance in roleplay through imagery. So when I look at a mini, I get an idea of what that character might be like or how they might have acquired some of the gear or I, I it allows me to uh, explore a different space I'm I'm tapping into someone else's creativity and using that to fuel my own which I find really uh, inspiring for me to build from so I agree that it's not necessary but I draw a lot of creative energy from looking at minis looking at pictures drawing my own pictures um so I've, I've always enjoyed that as a creative tool.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely, and I think that that's um, a part of why mm. there a lot of people use them and why they can be useful is they mm-hmm. they can help with that creativity and also help you stay consistent to a certain extent because you know you've always got that same mini so you always have or at least partly have that same conception of your character. That's exactly it.
1: I think there's even more to it than. Just like the miniatures and such that we're covering. Like, some players we know for a fact are just they work visually. Like, we've learned that in like education that some people they have to be tactile, they have to have something in their hands to be able to understand what's going on. But we also know very clearly in role playing games in particular that a lot of players do so much better if there's good artwork in the book just the book itself like shows like a scene of like you know adventurers or whatever fighting a dragon or maybe just a thief who's actually like slinking in the shadows and uh picking a lock or something something like that goes a really really long way towards people being able to picture that scene for themselves so i think that's also something that's very directly on our side of uh, the matter that as designers and such that we have a direct influence in how the uh, players actually perceive the game.
3: Right. And it feeds into what Car was saying earlier about the cover art of your rulebook, that it provides a lot of the context for what that game is about and allows you to be immersed in what the feeling of uh, whatever, fighting a bunch of dragons on a war-torn landscape might feel like
2: mm-hmm. the, the cover art is the players first beckoning towards the game and the, the rest of the art throughout the book kind of sets up the possibilities in the players minds of what can happen mm-hmm. it's 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 less about showing the player what their character is doing in that moment it's a it, it's more about getting the player in considering the the possibilities of what their character can do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm, that actually seems like an important thing as well. Like if you only ever see things that seem fairly realistic, like, you know, they're, they're fighting the dragon with a sword and they're using the shield to block the flame. Okay. Well you can use the shield to block fire breath apparently. Right. But mm-hmm. if you see like something that's like more comical and it's like you actually see a picture of somebody suplexing the dragon and it's like okay i know not to take this all this seriously anymore but also i can do that <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah the art goes a long way to establishing the the tone that it expects in the play
4: Yeah. Okay, I guess I will bring this up, although it was kind of dancing around it. Uh, in terms of art and tone, which is a good, I'm going to be off topic, which is weird for me. Uh, but in terms of art <laughs> and tone, uh, there's a really good case study of that in second edition Noblest versus third edition Noblest, where the rules are changed and they're easier to understand than third edition. But the main reason why third edition has such a lighter tone, according to most people, is a the writing style, and, but B, I think a lot of it is that they co- turn to way more cartoony art and way less interesting art. <laughs> it's just my personal opinion, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that beyond that. <laughs> but,
1: okay, well, I mean, that can actually have an influence on what people feel the game's about, too. Like, if, yeah, like, uh, anima is supposed to be you know, basically an anime role-playing game. It's basically like a Dragon Ball Z simulator. It doesn't call itself that, but it basically is medieval Dragon Ball Z. And the mechanics and such are built towards that. But when you look at the art style, almost all the art in the game is very anime-inspired. So you kind of get a sense of what they're going for really quickly just based off that.
2: Yeah, it's not just art that feeds into the tone. It's the writing style and the graphic design like pretty much everything in the book, paints some kind of tonal feel for the players to work in.
3: And one of the other components that I wanted to touch on was also the physical dice um, or the the randomizer, because I think that also makes a big uh, contribution to what your your immersion into the game is. There's a there's an indie game. Uh, called Caltrops um, where the dice themselves are D4s. Yeah, specifically because they look like little Caltrops. Uh, And I I think that's... you like one
1: when you step on it, too.
3: Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But I think that's the whole point, is that this is a game about Caltrops, and now your tools of the game match the themes of the game. So... I don't know too many other games that do something similar. Uh, I know that there was like a, I'd heard about this like sci-fi or something game where they had intentionally gone out of their way to make weirdly polyhedral dice, like a D23 or D24 or something like that, just so that people would pick up the game and grab these dice and have the same weirdness in handling them that they wanted um, like you've never picked up this die before, it's a strange item and artifact, and that was what they were going for for the game. So hmm.
1: that's what the different polyhedral dice that we have to begin with were used for. Like that's part of why they were used in D and D to begin with, as I understand hmm. it, was because like a D twelve and a D twenty and such were such weird things compared to a six sided dice that or six, I die, I suppose, singular, whatever. But it was so weird that they wanted to use that for magic and such so that it would feel strange and arcane and magical because it's like you weren't using normal shapes that you see in everyday life.
3: Exactly. It was
2: also because using the full polyhedral set and stocking them into the the, the boxes was cheaper than just getting D20s.
1: Huh. yeah i could see that as well <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah i uh, i've heard of another game which was a, a sci-fi weird alien thing which also only used d4s and did specifically use them so that you felt weird and alien and awkward cool yeah,
3: yeah i think basically a lot of these different immersive ideas are playing on senses So whether you're playing music at the table or you have a weird tactile feel to a component of your game or a visual stimulus, or um, I think a lot of these are basically just trying to get the players to a place where they can relate to what their character or what the themes of the game should impart. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Like, realistically, if you were going to make a Flatland RPG, your randomizer should be... Coins or cards
3: somehow,
4: <laughs> right. something that's flat. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, actually, and as long as Mark uh, brought up music and stuff, we can broaden our purview and talk about general engagement and immersion at the table, moving away from physical things and talking about how do we how, how do we as designers, um, and, and GMs, I think, to a certain extent, too, we're going to have to dip into that a little bit. Um, But how do we as, you know, diners and GMs keep players and people around the table engaged and immersed just by, you know, what we do, um, you know, whether that's playing music or, um, you know, uh, dimming the lights or something like that? Uh, Is there anything that is there anything specific that you like or dislike that, you know, either puts you in immersion or draws you out of it that GMs or players do around the table?
2: I going back to exposition, I think words matter. So like if if the if the characters are in a scene and they're shadows and they're described as just dark is depending on the genre or whatever, can be less effective than saying they're inky or some other more evocative word. So you know, using vocabulary that supports the themes or the genre or the setting goes a long way into
3: maintaining immersion. Mm-hmm. I agree. And even I, I usually like to do voices, so I'll try to take on a character um, and draw from some of my improv experience and try to do something that suits the um, what I want that character to feel like or sound like, and that includes what they say, but also how they sound. So I try to do my best in recreating that.
2: Yeah, I, I've I've done mannerisms mm-hmm. too. I'm sure you have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, On a little over that, politics.
1: One thing I've personally found that helps me a lot uh, is. playing in a dark room like preferably either like the room itself is entirely dark or but because that doesn't always work obviously because you have to read rule books and such having just like essentially a spotlight on the table itself with like anything that you need there but otherwise keeping the rest of the room in the dark is really handy for me because like i Can't form visual images in my head, but I can like understand like the dimensions of things and such. Like, I just know what it like, the data is there, but I don't have it in like a visual sensation kind of thing. So there's like no pictures there. But if I have like clutter going on around me, like seeing the rest of the room, it adds like a bunch of extra information that I don't need that actually makes it harder to picture what's going on i guess so yeah yeah, having like a dark room actually helps me a fair bit
2: yeah it some people are easily distracted by what's on the other side of the table from them or beyond the other side of the table so yeah that lighting and room setup can help
0: all right so what are what are our thoughts on music then because i know that that's a Um, a popular thing and especially like within um, GM advice areas is popular. You know, people say play music Um, and I, I'm personally am split on it. Uh, I like to sometimes, but I have very specific uh, like guidelines on what kind of music I want to be playing and when I'll do it um, because it's not always useful. And sometimes it's more distracting, I think, than not.
3: Yeah, I've, i I found that I ended up fiddling with the playlists a lot. So unless I constructed a really good playlist, I would always have to go. I didn't really like the song or this song's much louder than the other one before it. So now I need to go and I'm I'm no longer focused on the game. I'm focused on the music that's playing in the background. So mm-hmm. it drew me more away than it did pull me in. I've I've been thinking about I've been thinking
2: about not so much having background music, but just as a another GM tool like having a soundboard next to me Mm -hmm. where I can just hit a button and throw off like a door creak or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've I've done stuff like that. I had a a soundboard set up um, on a, on just a laptop uh, where I played music and other things like that. But that's really, it can be really taxing on the GM. Um, because, you know, I'd have 40 different buttons and I had to memorize all of them and then, you know, go, okay, I have to press the right key. And also, but also be, you know, engaging with my players and, uh, you know, it's another thing to keep track of, which tends to be distracting for me. And also sometimes when you, when you play that sound, then suddenly everybody goes, oh, that was a weird sound. And then everything grinds to a halt for a minute while everybody goes, oh, what the fuck just happened with that sound? And then you. You know, and it just kind of stops the immersion and pulls everyone yeah. out.
1: I imagine hitting the wrong button would cause all sorts of problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: See,
2: I have years ago I downloaded the massive like BBC sound effects library. Oh yeah. So I have I have a sound effect for basically anything. And there's like several thousand different files there. So if I was going to set that up for myself, I would build a little web app that would allow me to quickly navigate through them and then just fire off whichever one I wanted, like yeah, just, labeled and everything.
1: Just a quick thing on that. Uh, if anybody wants, like your listeners or whatever, um, com. is like S-O-N-I-S-S releases, like, every year or two, they they would release, like, a free batch of uh, professional sound effects that are meant for, like, video games. And mm-hmm. they just released a new batch for the GDC event uh, this year. And it's, like, 30 gigabytes of sound effects. So wow. I, you can just pick that up, like, free of charge, no problems. That's this cool.
0: Also- yeah, there's also, as long as you're talking about that, there's uh, tabletop audio, which is uh, a bunch of audio and it's ambient sounds and music and sound effects that are made for tabletop role-playing games. And I know some of it's a paid, but there's also a lot of free stuff you can access. Um, as, long as, we're, as long as we're bringing that up, because that's a, an interesting thing. I can't really speak to the quality because I haven't messed around with it that much, but it seems to be of decent quality.
1: Okay. To get back to music, then, uh, uh-huh. personally, I found that it can be nice, but it also tends to be distraction. Uh, you kind of have to prepare it in advance. If you don't have uh-huh. it all set up, if you don't have like playlists with easy access to get to the song that you want immediately, like a thirty second delay looking for the correct song, it it means the moment's already gone like yeah they, and
2: unless there's and unless there's a reason to have <clears throat> to use songs with vocals in them just don't
0: oh just yeah uh, instrumentals. Mm-hmm. yeah that's my that's one of my rules is no no vocals um pretty much i mean maybe like some little ha 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 or something but nothing with like yeah. words that's that's yeah, all in, bad
2: instrumentals and ideally instrumentals that loop cleanly
4: um, this is a weird side tangent that does, that's not relevant, but I want to say something. Um, the main time I've had music and, like, as back, like said background music that I prepared was, well, it wasn't that. It was we were playing in a place where there was music next door. So we, I technically have done role-playing games with local background music coming through the walls, and that's as close as I've come to that. <laughs>
1: The best time I've actually seen music be used was when we had a bard in the game and the GM decided that every time that he was going to make like his bardic music role and stuff, The quality of the role would determine which song he ended up playing because there was a situation where basically uh, my character in that particular game had been basically dragged dragged back in time from the modern era and had fed this medieval bard like an enchantment on his loot so he could actually play like he basically had all of... yeah. He had access to all the modern music songs, but he had no idea where they were coming from. So he did not know what song he was going to play when he sat down to play. He just played something off the top of his head, and the instrument basically fed him a song.
3: That's hilarious.
1: Yeah, some of the choices we got were really odd. Some of them were were really good. Uh, One of them was just like I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. Like, have you heard the... Uh, I don't even remember the name of it.
0: <laughs> this might be pretty far in tangent yeah. territory, Catrice. Yeah,
1: it, it might be. Sorry. Yeah. No, but it's... yeah, it, was, it, it did actually in- increase the fun of the game, but there were a couple of times where it took, like, a few minutes to pick out an appropriate song, and it really did hurt immersion value at that time. But at the same time, like getting an entire uh prison guard to start, you know, dancing in time to Smooth Criminal was pretty awesome. Yay <laughs> <laughs> okay. for <her> exploding dice.
0: <laughs> Wonderful.
2: I think person. I remember there's I think I remember one time me and some friends were playing Battletech. Or something, some mech game, and we just had the Quake 2 soundtrack running in the background the whole time. Like, I would love to find something like the Quake 2 soundtrack that was more medieval but had the same kind of cadence, um, cadence and energy and flow to it.
0: Uh, the Hexen soundtrack.
1: Mm.
0: Hexen is okay. another old, like, Doom clone, but was a fantasy game and had a lot of kind of fantasy metal-inspired soundtrack. Um And they're not fantastic, but might be what you're looking for anyway. Um, Now that we're, like, way off topic, uh, we can talk about what destroys Immersion, because we have just been... Destroying our immersion in this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I know we've kind of, we've poked at this, um, this topic a lot, because obviously, because a lot of, as we said it coming in, uh, a lot of discussion about immersion is really about what breaks immersion. Um,
1: But there is a very good reason for that, too. Mm -hmm. I think the premise that you have to start from is that players begin the game with a willing suspension of disbelief they want to believe they want to be in there to begin with like it's just a natural reaction that we try to fit ourselves into the story and picture ourselves in it so by default you tend to be immersed pretty easily as long as you have even like a fairly minimal amount of scaffolding to work with, you will tend to have like pretty decent immersion value. It's just a matter of things that actively take you out of it that are breaking like that, the limitations of the willing suspension of disbelief. You can actually get quite a lot of bend out of it before it breaks.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with, 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 that premise, that the expectation is that players are immersed by default.
3: Hmm. So to more directly answer the question, I guess there are things that would come up that um, are in sharp contrast with what is the current narrative and tonal direction of the game. So I think the best, most infamous example is the Grappling Rules from D&D 3rd Edition, where you have to pull out the book and you have to read the paragraphs to understand what is going on. And then you kind of try to wrap your head around what that means in the current context and what roles you need to do, and then next round revisit it in a different way. So it breaks what should be a smooth flow of combat. Yeah, that's a really good example of what I was going
2: to say, which is rules that don't get out of the way.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what I've been saying earlier. Like, it has to be, you want to have as short of a time dealing with the rules as possible. If you have to deal with them for a minute straight just looking up a rule or reading out a paragraph or whatever, you've already lost the players.
2: Mm -hmm. Or if somebody decides for whatever reason to just be a dickish rules lawyer and it drags out a discussion, that's pulling everybody out of the game. And it's to me at least, everybody's responsibility to cut that as short as possible, but for most games, it's mostly put on the GM's shoulders to keep everyone in the game.
1: Uh, I was just going to say, the one thing that I've done in particular for dealing with rules lawyers is no, actually, uh, one thing I've actually ended up doing is saying There's a core premise that's fed to the GM that if somebody comes up with a way to break something and they can give you a reasonable explanation for it, let it happen once, but they can't use it the same way again. If they want to do break something in the same way in the future, it won't work. They have to come up with a new solution each time, which actually breeds creativity among the players so that even if you do end up with a rules lawyer they're going to be constantly having to think about uh new and creative ways to break the game so that it's at least interesting when it happens and it doesn't stop the game for an argument you just say okay that was awesome let's go with it but you're not doing that ever again
2: and a a sort of similar technique that's sort of backwards to that is to <clears throat> teach the players to, if, if there's a discrepancy or a disagreement or whatever of how the fiction should proceed, then quickly make a provisional ruling and revisit it later, but don't retcon what happened. Mm. Like, move on with the game Discuss the issue post-game, and then everything else like that can happen according to that final ruling. But let the provisional ruling go just so that the game can keep moving.
1: Yeah, either way, it boils down to the fact. The same thing, though, is that let's just get this over with, and then we'll move on with it. As long as we're uh, still going along with whatever we're doing. It doesn't really matter what the ruling is, because if you just go through the ruling and keep going, then it's not really a big deal, regardless of what the ruling is. What matters is, are you still going back to playing the game or are you have an argument about the rules for half an hour? If you're having the rules argument for half an hour. Yeah, there's oh. nobody playing the game at that point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, all right, so, uh, cavoir what do you have that... Dis- what do you find destroys immersion often?
4: Oh, you're asking me that question directly. Uh, you know, I ever, <laughs> yes. If I ever have to think about uh, uh, the the geometric space of what I'm doing, particularly, like, in concrete terms, if I have to think about that in a real way, I know it's it's basically... Uh, As a human, I have a physics simulator, I have a, uh, what do you, let's call it, a calculus simulator in my head, and I don't, and I have never thought about, oh, that is five meters away. I have thought, that's pretty close, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So games that try to do that, like where I have, where you have to like, think about where you're aiming, what you're doing are actually really immersion-destroying for me, although I know it's the opposite for some other people, and I know people in general just like them. It's just not for me. Okay.
1: Well, there, are def- there are definitely some games that do that, where they just have, like, vague ranges, where it's like, are you close, near, or far away? And that's yeah. all you need. But I Yeah,
4: don't I know. I like... Better. Yeah, I'm generally for those. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, it,
1: it does have some limitations, unfortunately, and it can actually break immersion as well because you can be like okay i does this actually work like i can't actually understand how i'm at long range to these people but those people are in close range to somebody that's close to me and it's like i'm not really entirely sure what's where everything is at this point like actually having being able to see where stuff is does help in some cases, but it can be really annoying in others.
4: Yeah, generally, I haven't run into situations where things were the, the super unclear in that respect. Although I usually try uh, establish like try to establish the initial positions of everyone and make those fairly clear. I mean, I'm not entirely against uh, there being numeric like relative positioning, but uh, generally, I don't uh, it's like generally, I'll prefer like a simple grid over a complex one and uh, like things like that. And again, I haven't had problem with any or far away thing. Yeah, I generally, it's generally pretty clear. I try to make it generally pretty clear where everyone is, where everything is. <laughs> I don't know how to say beyond that.
0: <laughs> okay Um. alright so is there anything else that destroys immersion beyond the rules um, because we've been talking about rules a bunch and you know rules that don't get out of the way rules we have to think about but are there other things that can destroy immersion um, that regularly crop up in role playing games
1: anything you don't expect yeah like a distraction like say oh there's a fire a uh, truck going off in the background. It's like, oh, that's an interesting thing to hear in the uh, work encampment. So, <laughs> I suppose it was a bad well, idea to torch the forest to those elves, huh?
2: Or somebody's on their phone the whole time. Like, not only are is that person like has not only is that person extracted themselves from the game. Everybody else around them is sitting there watching them not be in the game, which is itself a distraction.
1: It can be, yeah. So I don't know. Some people, like most people actually tend to just um, blot out things that they're not paying attention to. So if somebody's playing their phone in the game, they're most The players are just going to ignore them. Like basically it almost becomes an empty seat where they don't even see the player. But if it's making like sound effects or if they're playing like a game or something on the phone and other people can see the screen, that's a different matter entirely because then you actually get movement. And once you have movement, the human brain's kind of built to track that immediately.
0: Okay. Um I think one of the things that uh often pulls me out of games uh is just like long item lists or weird th- like things that aren't necessarily rules but are things that you still need to reference during play and are just kind of too much. <laughs> um like tables of weapons or other things like that that it, you know sometimes you gotta pull out during play because you're like oh i gotta look at this thing but then it's like oh i need to find this one weapon but there's three pages of weapon lists Mm -hmm. or other other things
2: like that i think excessive bookkeeping is a specific form of rules that don't get out of the way okay
1: yeah i think it's also uh an issue when you have to look up that information because it's not actually relevant until like the last moment it's like oh the guard has attacks you with their weapon oh which weapon is it because i have like uh defenses against some weapon types over others and it's like (sighs) second to check
0: pull out the book yeah and right Anytime well, well, yeah, anytime you have to open the book and like leaf through it generally kind of at least hurts immersion, if not completely breaks it.
2: Well, by, the the ha- by the time the player by the time the player asks, well what kind of weapon was it? Because I have blah 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 blah, the immersion's already been broken by whoever said the guard was attacking them with their weapon and not stating what it was.
1: Yeah, it's like if everything's planned out in advance, like you know that the guards are going to attack them or you've made sure that the guards actually have like the weapons in advance. So you already have it set aside for yourself, then it's not a problem. But yeah, if you have to check it up at that moment, that can be a problem, especially
2: mm-hmm. if. Well, no, well, no, uh, what I'm saying is if the statement had been the guard attacks you with his sword, it's sort of some generic weapon then S.W.O.R.D. tells the player
1: what to, expect.
2: what to expect and what things on their sheet are relevant to that. They don't have to ask what kind of weapon. So saying S.W.O.R.D. instead of weapon is more informative to the player, and they can react faster.
1: Oh, that's another thing, actually. Stop well, stop
2: and ask and ask about some detail in the statement.
1: Oh, I think of it. You mentioned checking their sheet. Like, a really badly designed character sheet. Mm -hmm. Or one that is lacking information that you need to reference on a regular basis. I can do it. I can do it real
0: quick. Yeah, one of the things I I, I like about uh, a lot of modern um, RPGs, especially the more, like, story um, games, is that they have sheets that you can set out you know on the table like the powered by the apocalypse has the move lists and um a, a lot of other games have similar things where you have all the basic stuff you need to reference on the table at all times so anyone can just go okay I need to do this thing all right so it's right in front of me you know it's on my character sheet or it's on this piece of paper right in front of me so I can easily reference it and then know what to do instead of having to possibly laboriously go through the book and break immersion
2: or something that i struggled with for a while when designing my latest character sheets which are <clears throat> scarily four pages oh god organizing all the different topics into the pages so that each page had a
1: Eleven theme theme
2: yeah. yeah, so like the front page is like the basic overview of the character. There's the there's a whole page that's all combat stuff and so forth. So yeah, just because it's on the character sheet is a step, but organizing it to where the things that are most used together are together
1: mm-hmm.
2: is a huge step beyond.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have to go picking, hunting across, like, four different sheets looking for, like, certain information, that's going to be annoying really quick.
0: Yeah, that's, that's certainly having a good layout character sheet or other handouts um, that people can easily reference. It definitely does help with immersion and increases the immersion value. <laughs> um, but moving on a little bit, uh, one of the things we have listed here is unrealistic realism reality is weirder than fiction um so i'm assuming this is talking about you know uh where you're you're keeping immersed by making things that are sometimes just really weird um but if they're that that right kind of weird they can keep you immersed
1: sometimes it's the opposite like um one of the common things that actually is true in movies and television is anytime you hear like an eagle on TV, that's not an eagle, it's a hawk, because eagles don't sound like that. But it's become so common that even in a lot of uh a lot of nature documentaries, they actually edit out like the sound of an eagle and replace it with a hawk because that's what everybody thinks an eagle sounds like now.
0: Yeah, because a- they sound like little bitches.
1: Yeah, it sounds yeah. really weird. So they've changed it because so that it's not true to reality. And because of well, things like that.
2: It's mostly it's done specifically for bald eagles because bald eagles have a really pathetic cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. And and then you get into things like the Wilhelm scream, which anybody who is familiar with that when they hear it breaks them out breaks them out of the show they're watching. They're watching. Yeah, they know what it
1: is. Mm-hmm. In some yes. cases, that can be fine too. Though it's not necessarily terrible to break immersion. Sometimes breaking immersion is okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there are there are directors that use the Wilhelm scream deliberately as a joke. Um, But on back to the topic at hand here, what it's because we were discussing this. Before we started recording. The. Like reality sets its own rules. So like whatever happens in reality. Adjusts the definition of reality. But fiction. Has a duty. To seem real. It doesn't have. The freedom. As much freedom to. Redefine. What's real in the fiction. Mm
1: -hmm. Hmm. which at times unfortunately means that reality does end up being weirder than fiction because in fiction it has to seem reasonable reality doesn't have that requirement like reality can just do Hmm. random stuff for no apparent reason like the other day i had a glass in the uh in the sink, just dropped like a quarter of an inch and shattered into like 200 pieces. And I was like, what the hell was that? Like, if this happened in a game, I'd be like, that doesn't seem reasonable. That would probably kick me out of it. That would destroy my immersion values. What the I, No, that can't happen. And it's like, I don't care. I'm reality. I do whatever I feel like.
0: <laughs> Break immersion with reality. <laughs> suddenly come out of the dream you've been in for years.
2: But then again, if if the fiction shies away from doing something extremely unlikely just because it's extremely unlikely rather than impossible,
0: that kind of dulls the texture of the fiction. Mm. Well, but I, I think I understand what Kat's saying, is that there's, there's things you would see in reality and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, but it had to have happened. You know, I can't, I can't become unimmersed with reality as far as we know, but well, you can...
1: Are. That's usually like a psychological problem. <laughs> that's well, that's a
0: whole other people. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, if you saw, you know, a similar thing happen in a fictional story, you would go, what the fuck? That doesn't make any sense. What the- it depends on how
2: unlikely it is.
4: Yeah, it depends on, and it depends on what type of unlikely it is. Like, there are there's like things that are likely and expected because they are narratively likely and expected, to, despite the fact that they are likely to actually happen, and that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a different type yeah. of fiction logic that breaks that doesn't work like reality, but that, that's a whole
2: thing well yeah, cause yeah even even in a fiction you could have a glass drop a quarter inch and shatter into a couple hundred pieces of glass that's one thing that's unlikely but realistic however if the glass drops a quarter inch and shatters into a cloud of butterflies that's
4: not so realistic
1: is honestly, it magic's involved
4: <laughs> honestly i probably played more games where i could get away with like like with the butterflies thing than get away with like, the last thing i'll be honest
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah, that that's
4: what you think at war that
0: yeah. is
1: one advantage though is that fantasy settings as opposed to like science fiction you can say it's magic, I don't need to explain it. This is usually a bad idea, but you can use it that way. It's still good to yeah. have magic have a consistency to it, though, but yeah, you can you can bend the rules a bit more in fantasy than normal.
2: But mm. on the flip side, abusing that hand-waviness of magic <laughs> can be a new way of bending
4: immersion to a breaking point. Yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't abuse it. There, there's a yeah. Well, yeah,
0: I think there's there's times in when you have like a magic um, system, especially in regular fiction, where you can break the rules. Um, you know, because whatever. Like in an anime, it's because they believed in themselves really hard, or there was friendship <laughs> or something. You know, like there are certain times you can break those established rules. Um, because the well, the story demands it.
2: Well, you're not even breaking the rules. You're breaking the expectation, but still maintaining the rules.
1: Yeah, like if you look at something like Tengen, Toppager, and Lagan, it is exactly what you said. They believed in themselves, so it worked. And it's like, they have literal bullshit cannons, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but it works within the rules of that setting, like, they establish it very clearly that as long as you have, like, this fighting spirit and you absolutely believe that you can kick somebody's ass, you can totally do it, no matter what your skill level is.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Is there anything else where uh, it's important to, like, make the... or to keep... To keep the difference between reality and fiction and to use that to your advantage uh, in terms of immersion. No? Okay. Um, all uh, right. I'm, I'm thinking. Oh. Okay.
2: Um, Like, if you want to push the boundaries of the fictional reality but not break them, that can help keep the fictional world um, saturated with wonder. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, you can, like, you can push the boundaries, but you can't actually break them, because once you break them, that that once that membrane of believability is pierced. Then everybody leaks out of it. They're no longer immersed.
1: I can think of another exception, which would be like the black dot on the wall thing. Like, if you have a perfectly white wall and then you put one black dot in the middle of it, that's immediately where your eyes go. So, if you have like a world that's very consistent, everything makes sense, and then you do something that would normally break immersion value everybody just stops and goes wait what just happened that can very uh explicitly be used by a gm easily to lure people into going to explore whatever that is and i'm pretty sure rob's not here at the moment but his game definitely has that built into it where there's like a sudden turning point in it where things just change and what was supposed to be well-established is no longer established and that is very definitely baked into the rules of his game
2: yeah but that's another example of going against expectations in a way that doesn't actually break the fictional reality I and think it kind of does the, at the, first. Until it, it's it, 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 it makes It makes people stop and think, but it doesn't actually yank them out of the fiction. Yeah. Unless whatever is happening is completely, it depends on how ridiculous it seems. Or how unreal it, in quotes, like unfiction it seems understand what that means (laughs) um but then you know you get into this from there you get into something i like to call versions of truth which is you know what people know may not necessarily be true so you know people could Think that like dragons are these huge ginormous beasts when in reality, somebody every time someone sees one, it's this like Komodo dragon sized thing. But the reason why people think dragons are huge is because the stories of the encounters embellish them.
1: You should have seen the one that got away,
2: exactly. (laughs) Or, yeah, so what people know to be true isn't necessarily true. And mm-hmm. that's a tool that you can use narratively to push or pull or nudge the characters in a, di- in a certain direction.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So now let's talk about when we don't want immersion. Um, I, I think we we poked at this before, but there are times probably when we want to move a bit out of the fiction uh, as we're playing, and you know maybe look at it from a larger perspective, or you know think about it in a rules way and not be immersed in the story. So what are the the times that we should do that? When should we be? moving ourselves out of the fiction and thinking about the the story or you know thinking about our characters and not be in the moment and immersed
3: well i think an obvious point is for i guess safety uh, mechanics and and any topics that can be troubling that you would want to jump out of character to address um like, there are reasons that people go and break immersion. Like, if you have a phone call, there might be valid reasons to taking the phone call that, like, <laughs> you need to be out of the fiction of the game. And if we can understand that, then that's that's an obvious one. So distractions that need to happen. But um, in the fiction of the story, I think there's also reasons to pop out of it if you are not something necessarily too um, invested in the role play aspect, you can still interact with the game without needing to be immersed in the character in the fiction and still have a good time.
4: Yeah, that's kind of connected to something I wanted to say. Um, ultimately, like I like immersion. It's useful as a tool, but, what, uh, this is like kind of why I haven't had a whole lot to say directly on this topic is 100% of the time I will value flow and engagement over immersion. What I mean by that is uh, essentially I'm don't if I'm okay with sacrificing the fiction for trading this for talking about how we want to do a scene. I'm okay with things like that uh, like it's fine if they don't happen Like, but it's not the end of the world if they do I guess is how, how I want to say that. And it's ugh, weird. I guess it's kind of we. I guess it's kind of we're, we're, we're it, during this entire conversation, we've been talking in a lot of ways more about engagement than immersion. And sometimes like we are talking about directly being stuck in a character at all times, which is, I think closer to the technical definition. And I guess that's what I wanted to say. We Carry on. (laughs) Yeah, I
2: I think you have a valid point where sometimes it is worth it to invest in future immersion
4: by coming out of it. Like if you're setting up a scene. Mm -hmm. or, Or just talk about what you want to happen instead of like doing instead of having to break the scene and like even in the moment. Like it's not I don't know how to phrase it better than that. Uh, like, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's better to talk about how you want a scene to happen than to actually talk than to actually stay in character for the entire scene. But yeah, that's the whole thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or, or players asking because this is a common thing. Like players asking the GM if they can do something or how it would work. Mm-hmm. That's constructive extraction.
1: Yeah. Uh, You can even build that into the game, though. Like, I definitely have abilities built into the game where you can ask the GM such so it maintains the immersion value. But I think the big thing to realize is that immersion is a type of fun. So if you, like, fun has to trump immersion. So, like, immersion value, if it happens to be present, it's like, okay, that can be fun and all. But if the point of the game is to have fun and being strictly immersed in the game is preventing people from enjoying the game, then you've missed the point. So like if you have players that enjoy chatting with each other at the table and it's like they're just making like pop uh, culture reference jokes and stuff. And that's part of what they enjoy about playing the game is just making like jokes about how oh you give them the axe and then it turns or, yeah, into just, them like ranting about like a, a rock concert or something. It's like if you remove yeah, that capable, you'd actually bet.
2: Some groups are capable of having an ongoing table talk that's not immersed and others aren't. It depends yeah. on the table culture and the the ability of each player to flip their, head, flip their mind in and out of the fiction or, it, or mm-hmm. coexist concurrently in and out of it.
1: Yeah.
3: So, so yeah, yeah. It, it I, depends on the players in the group. Exactly. And I think the important part is also setting up the expectations of whether or not a certain amount of, um, breaking immersion is acceptable to everyone at the table because if you're okay with that, then there's nothing wrong with a non immersive experience if everyone's having fun talking about their weekend and not necessarily being super uh, okay. So, the focused.
4: difference between talking about your weekend and talking about the game in a meta way, <laughs> I sure. believe that in that, in like things that uh, you can still be engaged with the game without like necessarily thinking of yourself in the you, like thinking of yourself one-to-one to your character is I guess the thing and I, I think engagement with the game is important and it's very valuable and like if I do think that pop, the like pop culture references are uh, they can work especially if they flow with the game what the game is but there's yeah. like, flow is very important like,
1: yeah, yeah I think the pop culture references in particular or just joking in general that's outside of the game as long as it's in context to the game and it's only for a few seconds it's usually fine because yeah. it pops you out for a second but then it's like well this is only came up because it was in relation to the game and you pop right back in again
0: mm-hmm. right well and as as well I think there's um there's value in being able to kind of take a step back from the game Um, And like have that breather, you know, or, you know, especially if you've had if you're playing a game that's kind of intense, um, you know, to be able to kind of step back and, you know, make a joke about some pop culture thing or, you know, talk about what's going on or something like that. um, That can be really beneficial to then, you know, when you're when you're back, when you're continuing to be immersed uh, to have that same value, that same intensity that you like. But at the same time, it can be kind of hard to keep that up. Um, for a long time.
2: Yeah, sometimes a tension breaker can be useful. Oh, often, yeah.
1: Well, that's kind of the purpose of humor in general. But Yeah, in general, I think the key thing to keep in mind is that immersion is a type of fun. It's not necessarily the best type of fun for the people at the table. If For some people, it is. Some game groups, immersion value will be the single most uh, enjoyable thing that they can experience, and if you interrupt it, it can really upset them. But for other groups, it's not that big a deal. It really comes down to prioritizing fun, the overall fun level for that group. And it's going to depend on the group and themselves for what types of fun they favor over others.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
4: Does your game? I assume it does. It still have the types of fun thing at the front that I, that was actually One of the things I like the most from your game. <laughs> so I thought yep. I'd bring it up. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yep. I totally do. I I don't use the eight types of fun that they came up with in that study or whatever i i use a variation on it because some of them i didn't entirely agree with but i think they were like 75 percent right kind of thing like they were they were definitely on the right track no i i think i use like i think i used about Five were basically the same. One of them was a variation on something they had and two more were like different. Like I changed the concept, but the I the basic idea is that yes, there are definitely different types of fun or things that people enjoy doing. And if you take it out in advance, at the very start of the game and say, okay, what does each player like the most? What things do they not really care about? And can we cater to the ones that they actually enjoy for this game? Or maybe this person will not like this GM or this player group, and it probably won't be entertaining for everybody. Like, if you get that out of the way in advance, it saves so many problems.
2: Yeah, this is where immersion kind of feeds into the social contract. Like, everyone has to agree on... The, the level of immersion that they enjoy, mm-hmm. or the range of immersion, mm-hmm. the range of depth that they'll tolerate overall, not just, you know, if there's an X card situation or whatever, but like everyone has to agree whether on some range between just having your everybody's toes in the water versus scuba diving. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Like, there are some groups where they'll get really upset if you just say, oh, my character does this. They're like, no, do it in character.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, I was I was going to bring up, um, I was going to say, like, stuff like that doesn't necessarily, I don't think that necessarily breaks immersion. Um, ha- you know, just making statements like, my character says this, or my character does this. Um, because immersion is often about flow, and if like you know, you have a person who's got a very charismatic character, for example, and it's like, oh, my character gives a very rousing speech. Um, you know, if if they're not the type of person who can give a rousing speech, it's probably better for immersion for the game if they just say, my character gives a rousing speech, than tr- attempt to give a rousing speech.
1: Yeah, I really. Think that it in particular is a really important example that needs to be understood by a lot of designers and GMs that not every player can do the things their character can. So just saying, well, role play it out in every situation is not necessarily a very good way to actually deal with that.
2: Yeah. It, so, so what we're saying is that voice is a important immersion factor the 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 difference between um ragnar runs across the room versus my character runs around across the room or versus i versus i run across the room like those are three different voices in 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 writing terms that yeah. have a big impact on what the other players can envision
1: yeah this to, to some degree it can actually backfire like if you say i run across the room and the other people just look at you and it's like you're not in the game your character is <laughs> and so it, it can actually be confusing at times but the thing is that different people are going to have different levels of what bothers them it's like you know, basically the grammar Nazi kind of thing where it's like, oh, you you spelled this word wrong or you didn't use the right there, there, there kind of thing. It's like some people don't care. They understand what you're saying. Other people, it drives them absolutely nuts. So it can actually drag them out.
2: I would call those people like voice Nazi.
1: Like in
2: person. (laughs) (laughs) The nth person Nazi.
1: Yeah. I, I, I know it's kind of... It sounds dumb if it doesn't bother you, but if it does bother you, it probably bothers you a lot. Yes. All right.
0: Um, okay, so I think uh, I'm going to call for any last thoughts. Is there anything that we missed here? Um, does anyone have anything that we missed that they want to bring up? I think we
3: did a pretty good job covering the topic. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so.
1: Um, mm, there's uh, there's one thing that I'm kind of thinking of, but I'm not sure how it applies, and it's the uh, like, I can't form it into something that's coherent. Maybe somebody else can, as the concept of, like, illusions which you can disbelieve. And how that applies to immersion value, because that's something that I've run into a few times, and it's caused some really weird situations, but I'm not sure how to phrase it.
2: Like the the, the ability of a player to separate their reality from their character's reality?
1: Well, I mean more so in the sense of like um illusion magic, so like I've run into a couple of times. It's especially bad with DD's rules where it's like you make an illusion and if if the players are aware of it, even if they aren't, then the concept of disbelieving an illusion, something that seems real for all intents and purposes, and it might be portrayed to you as being real but then it gives, like, incorrect information. It's like, you could actually use, like, that to... that breaking immersion value to tell you that it's an illusion instead of real, but it's, like, really awkward to do that.
2: It sounds like you're dancing around the topic of metagaming.
1: It it is partially metagaming, yeah. It is partially metagaming, but not all the time. Like sometimes it definitely is metagaming. Like if the player knows that it's not real, but the character doesn't know it's not real, then yeah, you you definitely get into metagaming territory, but I've actually had situations where like um like I had a character once where they were stuck in a puzzle, except the puzzle was unsolvable, and it was driving me absolutely mad as the player because I kept rolling, apparently, really badly because I didn't get to roll for it. The GM was just rolling for me. And it's like, if you roll well, then I'll give you a clue that something's wrong with the illusion. But I kept rolling like crap, apparently, because they they're <laughs> rolling for me. So, so I was trying to solve this puzzle that couldn't be solved. And I would
2: chalk that up to just crappy GMing.
1: Yeah, it, it was really frustrating. Like, I found out what they were trying to do, and it's like, okay, I understand the concept here, and I'm sure that somebody else has done this before because it made perfect sense in theory, but in practice, this was really, really heavily immersion-breaking for me, but not in the way that you'd think, and I don't even know how to describe it.
2: That's, uh, that's one of the pillars of OSR, Like, how is it phrased? It's player ability over character ability. Like, there are very right and very wrong ways to employ that. And this particular situation, to me, seems like one of the very wrong ways.
1: Yeah. It it seemed like I understood the reasoning. Normally it was like a really great GM, but it was just this one case was like, oh my god, what are you thinking? <laughs> but anyway, I, I think that's basically the last thing I can think of that's related to Immersion, really. Okay. I'm not sure how it is.
0: Alright. Is there anything anybody else would like to add that we missed? Like, if you're
2: running a fantasy game This is really specific, but if you're running a fantasy game, do not mandate that drinking water in the wilderness will immediately give anybody a disease a deadly disease. Just don't. It's not realistic. It's not even true in history. Just don't do it. I had a GM, I had a GM run a game like that before where like nobody drank water ever. Everybody always drank beer. <laughs> no, I mean just
0: don't do it. It's not
1: accurate. Dehydrating.
0: I that okay, well, we're not gonna get in the weeds on that, but yes, sure. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think we'll call it an episode then. Uh thank you everybody for listening. Um thank <laughs> you for listening and uh have a good week. Design good games, uh have a good night because you're it's always night when you're listening to us. We love you yes. all.
4: <laughs> yeah because you, you should hear, you should see the time of night when we actually record these anyway uh, thanks again <laughs> for coming back after we've vanished for three weeks even the, like all ten of our listeners I'm yeah. sure most I of I mean like 18 listeners
1: it is a nightmare <laughs> it has to happen at night
0: <laughs> there you go alright <laughs> goodbye listeners goodbye. Or listener. thank you